This week's episode of the Film Lovers Podcast is brought to you by nobody. Because we ain't got nobody sponsoring the podcast yet. But man, doing these little pre-ads sure does make it feel more legitimate, doesn't it? Until that day comes that we do have sponsors, our shows will always be sponsored by you, our loyal listeners. We're grateful for the love you give us by listening and subscribing and by tweeting us at FilmLoversPod. We really enjoy the conversations we have with you guys and always look forward to hearing your input on episodes. So this week we got a great show on our favorite movie moments. And without any further ado, let's get to that episode. I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Love is is too weak a word for the way I feel. I love you. You know, I loathe you. I I love you. Two Fs, yes. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. This is going to show my age a little bit, but guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> FLP's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Guess who's back? We're back. The Film Lovers Podcast is back. I missed us. I missed us too. Casey, did you miss us? No, it's it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> Casey's been gone for a long time. Uh, I feel like last time you recorded, it was 2017. The Film Lovers, we went on a unintentional hiatus it has been probably by the time you hear this a month and guys i just wanted to know our names my name is russell dietrich i'm one of your co-hosts i'm casey summers to my right over there is casey summers he's already forgotten how we introduce the co-hosts <laughs> <laughs> and over there in the sitter that, hey that's david ryan anderson <laughs> David Ryan Anderson <laughs> is living in a city formerly known as Chicago. Hey, I'm David Ryan Anderson, everybody. Currently known as... I live in Chicago. Oh, gosh. Where do you want to live this week? I didn't think this part through. Where do I want to live this week? I want to live in the Oasis. Oh, yeah, that's good. And over there in the city formerly known as Chicago, currently known as the Oasis, it's David Ryan Anderson. Why is it the help, Oasis? Help, I'm trapped in a mediocre movie. Sorry. <laughs> David, no, spoilers. no spoilers. No spoilers. The Oasis is a city, the virtual city that, well, I guess it's the game of Ready Player Universe. One. Oh, okay. Yeah, you'll learn all about it. We're not yeah. talking about Ready Player One today, but we will probably yeah, there's do There's an embargo. There's an embargo by Russ. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it, so I can't talk about it. Sorry, America. Russ is being selfish. Okay, no. I wanted to hear Casey it. Casey hasn't seen it. But I'm okay if David talks about it without spoilers. David managed to see it on a Wednesday, which was impressive. But uh, we're gonna connections. we're gonna probably talk about that uh, next episode. So please yeah. leave us a review and subscribe for that. <laughs> Russ isn't saying it, but he's sorry. So uh, Casey, David, what uh, what'd you guys do over the hiatus? Oh man, I don't have anything good to report. Taxes, finished a class. <laughs> watch movies <laughs> i thought you went to like a cool city oh i did i visited minneapolis which is a very cool city to all our listeners in minneapolis your city is awesome which Ooh. by the way i didn't do this intentionally but i didn't know that like the post-punk scene like husker do and the replacements they're from minneapolis that's impressive yeah they got I a, did not know that either they got a great music scene yeah prince 
Um, Bob Dylan was from Minneapolis. Well, he's from Minnesota, not Minneapolis. He he spent some time in Minneapolis, I think. Do you guys know how cool <laughs> Minneapolis is? Uh, how cool? That's, it, that is it's so cool. cool. It snows nine out of 12 months up there. Ayo. Okay. Uh, no. Again, America, Russ is sorry. All right, David, what did you do over the hiatus? Uh, I've been I've been trying to grow my media empire. Uh, By making mediocre on. YouTube movies about wrinkle in time. I've been making I'm trying to I'm trying to do uh, weekly movie reviews. I am working on some larger larger long form stuff that I can release. Just trying to get in the habit of like talking about talking about movies and, and producing things. David's long con is he's going to be creating a underground competitor to the Film Lovers podcast. And then once he's ready, he's going to defect over. and start his own podcast called uh, Lovers of Film Podcast. <laughs> Lovers of Film. Film, <laughs> film and the men who love them. David, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to your review of Wrinkle in Time. I, I, th- I think you're an insightful guy. Listen to Thank your review you. of The Last Jedi changed how I thought about the movie. Thank you. All right. David, I already decided I'm not going to listen to your review of Wrinkle in Time, and I went a step ahead and I reported it for abuse to YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Man, let's discuss how bad that movie is, Wrinkle in Time. So uh, we could do that real quick if you wanted, but let me tell you guys what I did over the hiatus. I know I have a reputation of being the meanest person on the podcast, but it seems that I had the most selfless of breaks because I spent uh, my spring break down in Houston, Texas, helping with hurricane relief. That's amazing. Yeah. That was, uh, good job. Good job. Good yeah. job. Here, I, I'll give you a real snap of approval. It's my hometown. Yeah. David, for, quit snapping. Contributing. <laughs> You're from Houston? My first seven years of life. Oh, that's cool. It, it's, it's, ah, I never knew that. It's a cool city. It was, um, I think the thing that stood out to me was, People were genuinely grateful, like just random people at Starbucks or at uh, Chick-fil-A. If they ever found out like what we were doing, they'd always be like, oh, we really appreciate you coming down here and doing that. It means a lot to us. And I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting people to just thank us randomly. Um, And, you know, like, honestly, the amount of impact we had was probably nothing. But, you know, I think for that those couple families we got to interact with. It was, it was good to help and do the little we could. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, cool. Speaking of good, what's the opposite of good? <laughs> it is bad. Excellent. That's your segue into wrinkle in time. Wow. Yeah. That was two distinct personalities, like answering that question. So uh, did you guys want to qu- quickly talk about a W O T? Yeah. I've, I've been reading the books and I was, I had high hopes. I think David DuVernay is a good director um, and so I was excited about it and was really disappointed when I watched it. Um, the dialogue just felt weird. I don't know if it was the editing. Um, I think um, I think it's the direction. Um, there are some good actors in that movie that seem like bad actors, like Reese Witherspoon. She's a good actress, but she seemed like a bad actor in that movie. Um, and so the dialogue, if it was the way it was cut or the way the actors were directed, it just like felt weird like people weren't really talking to one another or connecting um in the story it just i wasn't able to get into it because because of it now david 
On uh, Metacritic, it has a 53. Okay. And on IMDb user rating, it has a 4.2 out of 10. I never, ever listen to IMDb's so ratings. Da- so, David, you would probably give this movie an 11 out of 10. I wouldn't give it an 11 out You're goo-goo-ga-ga crazy for this movie. <laughs> and I feel like the country... And me and Casey, we need you to explain yourself. Because this I, is... I'm so curious what you didn't like about the movie. Um, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> but then you have to defend I'll, yourself. I'll talk, but I want to make sure I'm addressing what you guys are talking about. Okay, here's somehow. my issue. I hadn't read the book since I was, I don't know, probably 12. So the book, whatever. I don't care about the book. Um. That might have been your big mistake, Casey, having read the book too soon. I think Megan, my wife, did that too, and it kind of ruined it for her. But my big issue was that um, it didn't seem to know what kind of movie it wanted to be because it, it had this contrast between, like, Ava DuVernay's voice and, like, her camera work and then, like, this weird Disney Channel movie. Oh, yeah. And then... After school special. Yeah. It kept breaking into these, like, weird uh, musical montages. With like, oh uh, yeah, the music was so weird. The way they used music was terrible. It, you know, I I watch Freeform from time to time. I'll admit it, and it just felt like uh, it felt like The Descendants too at times. Um, if any of my Disney Channel people out there, <laughs> no. So I I just felt like Deva Deva Ava Duvernay. I feel like she got hijacked personally. I don't know if she did. She might totally believe in this movie, but. I feel like her voice kind of got kidnapped by the Disney effect and it just felt inconsistent. And, um, and I, I just really didn't care for, um, I don't know, a lot of the special effects and things like that just felt poorly done. I actually liked the special effects. I thought it was really, I thought the effects were, yeah, were on par with like Marvel or whatever. Yeah. I, I didn't, (laughs) <laughs> all right david why is it why was it so good i so right up front i'll say that i uh i get a very easily emotionally invested in movies i'll admit that and i was like i was crying by the end of it but not like not like weeping but like you know like oh my god like i had tears in my eyes and stuff but so like on one level like i i it elicited a genuine emotional reaction from me but also i just think that like, did I personally want to watch a movie with, like, Radio Disney songs about, like, Be Yourself and Empowerment and stuff? Like, that's not what I would choose to go out of my way and watch. Are you sure, David? But that, like, the movie is not for me at the end of the day. Like, this movie is for kids who consume media like that, and they are drawn to something like that. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't feel like it's fair to judge those kind of aesthetic decisions that are intentionally meant to speak to a generation that is so detached from where we are and what we want to see. Now, also, I think we live in a world where those, those distinctions don't, those choices don't have to be made. Like Pixar does a good job of uh, um, sure. appealing to kids and adults. I think the Marvel movies, like, I don't think that that just, that has to happen. I don't think it has yeah, to Yeah, I agree. No, but, but what I'm saying is that I think the decision to do that, to try to be like media that they are familiar with, is not... I don't see that as an inherently flawed 
decision or like some kind of creatively bankrupt decision. I think there's legitimacy to that. But furthermore, what I really like about the movie is I just really like its message. And I, so I said the opposite of what Russ said, that I thought that it was surprisingly unified in what it was trying to do in terms of it wanted to be a movie all about trauma, how to engage with trauma in a healthy way so it doesn't define you or shut you down. Um, being able to find, I mean, being able to address cycles of abuse and how, you know, uh, uh, abuse can lead to fear, fear can lead to hate, you know, this whole Yoda thing and how it can cycle back and how to break that. Um, I mean, even it, it deals with like blended families, like, like a lot of these weird, like inherent questions and, and anxieties that can come with that territory. And it was doing all of these things which I think are noble questions to address, especially for a kid's movie, especially like a modern kid's movie, that these are issues that kids will deal with. And I don't know what other media is out there for kids that is engaging with these kind of questions for them. And that was what I really I, I, appreciated. I, I think you just need to watch more Disney Channel and Freeform because it's pretty common. And I, I think like, I just think it's a it's a bad argument to say, oh, because you're old, you just don't get it. Like, no, I'm not saying you don't um, get it. I'm saying it's not it's not meant to appeal to you. Like if I have if I have children, I, I just hope my children have higher brows than than that because that sounds so pretentious. <laughs> I would be you know, glad to show my kids this movie. I yeah no that that's fine, but I I just think like that's a that line of argument is, is it it kind of just there's no talking back to that. It's just saying like, oh, you just don't get it because it wasn't made for you. Like. This movie was a family movie. Like it was made for parents and kids and I'd say anyone in between like and I and I think it's legitimate to say that those montages were object were objectively cheesy and you can do montage way better than that. Pick better music even. And um so I don't know. That that argument you made kind of bothered me intrinsically when I read you write that uh, earlier and I I just think yeah. it's not a fair uh, critique of the critique. I'm not saying yeah. what I'm saying is not that you're wrong for not liking it. What I'm saying is that I think it's a completely legitimate creative choice because it's trying to talk to people, to kids who are already but like that stuff. In order for it to be legitimate, we need to invite some 10 year olds that didn't like it. And then you might be able to hear the argument. Uh, you, you know, if it's, if it's made for just 10 year olds, like there might be a, um, a misfire as far as expectations because i i live in a world with star wars and pixar and marvel where they they do like the kids and the adults at the same like they appeal to them equally well mm -hmm. and i think those were my expectations going into this movie and so if it was intended for for more for kids if that was a creative choice i think i came in with the wrong expectations and, and even like how the bully was somehow magically redeemed at the end because she had like body image issues or something like there was no resolution between the characters. There was just like this cut back to her. You learn what her issue is. And then they have this like pregnant stare at one another from the grass to the window. And, well, and somehow plot there's, wise, there's resolution to that. I mean, plot wise, there was an evil, this like evil malevolent force that had basically been possessing her that was defeated. Like it, that's, that is addressed plot wise, but also thematically, like the reason for that is because she, she was a character that represented this idea of how right, society but abuses he, people humans, and creates and crafts new abusers. Humans still need 
still need to have conversations to reconcile things. Like, but that, but that was such a small, that was such a side thing. That was not a central. I'm just saying it, it, it was stuff like that that just felt like um, the stake. Like I never felt the stakes of the movie, and and I'm just tired of like every problem with evil is solved by finding yourself and like this your intrinsic like self-worth and it's just like it's just a bankrupt uh view of the world and and i'm just sad that kids are constantly being taught like in order to triumph you have to look within because a lot of times when you look within you're just going to find more darkness and what do you do with that i i mean i think the movie actually does try to handle that that topic but the how so because that is like it's not it's not purely that she's looking within it is i mean she's been just trying to deal with problems on her own and that's left her stagnant as a person and like emotionally like she's stunted and all these things like in a way she's like shell-shocked for like the first act of that movie right. from like you know the, the trauma of her dad leaving but all right no keep going keep going but okay but um sorry what was i just talking about uh something dumb <laughs> this is why this is why people say you're the mean one <laughs> i'll be mean i'll be mean if it means that truth is, is oh oh, oh, oh. no 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 oh wow no no but the thing no no okay so Woo! here's the thing that they do they're constantly addressing the fact that she has to enter into her trauma it's like a recurring thing throughout the movie she has to enter into that and address things that even if they're going to be even if they're going to hurt her and stuff like she needs to be able to face a reality that's unpleasant i mean that's not just like feel good about yourself or whatever like she looks to her her family she like she finds the oops sorry she's able to look at like her mother and her father and her brother in order right. to realize like what but her worth is a key a key change from the book is that at the end in the book she battled the evil with her father and uh sure i mean in this movie she does it by herself so it isn't about pulling the family and it's about you know i i don't know i i just th- this is just the message that's getting communicated to to young people and to me even when i was young and it's just it's when you look more. deep within yourself you're just going to find more darkness and then good luck with that but casey is i think pointing we'll, pointing well, to we're his gonna have watch. to talk more about why you think this is a morally bankrupt message in this movie i thought the opposite but that's that's interesting no i'm i'm talking more about not just wrinkling time but like in general the the solution that's being presented to young people is that you have to to look within and i just think i guess i don't know she had the whole movie was about her being able to rely on other people and stuff i thought but anyway yeah we watched different movies i think <laughs> but here <laughs> wait know. can i say real quick i did i did like it as well at times um i thought the acting was really good and i, I thought the acting was really strong at the beginning some of the camera work was especially like the fla- like the flashbacks had kind of a handheld camera versus the present day and i just thought um i really enjoyed that i just wish it had more of ava duvernay's kind of style mm-hmm. casey you kind of just stopped talking yeah i mean i i um i did feel like it it reduced the themes in the book to her self-esteem too much um i think there's a lot more going on in the book that the the film didn't tackle oh no i mean yeah. i'll absolutely agree with that yeah Anyway, try better next time, Ava. We love you. <laughs> Selma was great. I like the 13th. 
<laughs> the end. I want to see the 13th. I got that on my KUU. She's coming to town. They're screening the 13th. She'll be there. Eberfest. Hashtag Eberfest 2018. All right. Finally tell her how you feel. <laughs> um, so do, let's do the discuss topic real quick. <laughs> oh, gosh. Here we go. You guys ready for a minute? We were going to try to have a shorter episode. We're not starting off well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to cut out any talk of us having shorter episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you guys ready for America's favorite segment? I mm-hmm. am. Uh, yeah. It's time for... Discuss. Metacritic is a great source to find out how good a movie is and whether or not you should watch it. Discuss. Uh, no. Oh, that's surprisingly topical <laughs> to what we were just talking about. I know. I was... When I... I I was a, I was a little afraid we would we would discuss it before my discuss sec- segment. Could I go? Could I? Could I go first? Yeah. Because I, I feel very passionately about this. Well, this is kind of directed at you. All right. Here's my here's how I approach life and cinema. I will I will try my hardest to not look at the Metacritic score until after I've seen the movie. Now, Movie Pass is changing this. Because I can see a lot more movies now, and I'm wasting a lot of time seeing bad movies. You're agreeing with me. And I'm like, oh, Pacific Rim, should I see it? I don't know. Uh, let me check the Metacritic score. No, I'm not going to see that. Um, but in general, like Phantom Thread or uh, Lady Bird or like uh, Wrinkle in Time, like Star Wars, Last Jedi, like I didn't want to see the Metacritic score until after I seen it. And then what I like to do is kind of compare my review with what the Metacritics are saying. But even more than that, what I prefer to do is I like to go within Metacritic and I have like three or four outlets that I kind of relate to, namely IndieWire, uh, Variety, and um, there's one more. And I tend to agree, and uh, Hollywood Reporter usually, I tend to agree with those three sources. So I kind of like to look within the Metacritic, but I'm very staunch most of the time that you should not let Metacritic decide for you what you should and should not see. Discuss. Yeah, I you know I don't really use Metacritic. I, I If I do use anything, I'll use Rotten Tomatoes just because I like the fact that I can go through and read um, the different opinions, uh, what, what they're saying. I don't, I don't care too much about the number score. I mean, if it's really high, I'm intrigued. But if it's really low, I, like, that, that doesn't really mean anything to me, I have a few critics who I really, I know that I tend to like their perspective and agree with them. So maybe I'll listen to them. But typically, I know if I want to see a movie or not the moment that the trailer comes out. That's yeah, all I care or like about. Uh, like Elvis Mitchell, I'll let him like he uh, makes the treatment podcast. Like he's someone if he if he recommends something, I'll probably go see it regardless of the Metacritic score. Yeah, I think. Um, well, by the way, I think most people go to Rotten Tomatoes, but I think Metacritic's better. Because Rotten Tomatoes basically just tells you if a movie's good or bad, but Metacritic tells you how good a movie is. Um, actually, when I when I did this discuss topic, I brought it up because I I know it's been an increasing thing between Russ and me. I don't actually believe <laughs> okay. most people follow Metacritic and allow that to um, determine what they watch. I do, I because I found that for me, my tastes tend to agree with. Like basically, my statement is the same thing as saying. The critical consensus is a good way to, yeah. um, and that works for me, actually. I tend to agree with the critical consensus. This yeah. is Russell speaking, and I just wanted to say that <laughs> uh, there's something really satisfying to me about, like, 
uh, feeling like a movie is a 60 and going to Metacritic afterwards and seeing that they think it's a 62. Yeah. Like that's just really, it makes me feel kind of good about myself. And also what's nice about Metacritic is that I can go, like, I'll be like, man, what was wrong with that movie? I can't like verbalize what the issue was, but I know something was off. Then I could go to Metacritic, read a couple articles and then be like, oh, okay. That's kind of what I was noticing in my gut. That's helpful. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of it just after I've seen the movie. No, that's true. I, I, I'll go around to tons of sites and read stuff after I see a movie. If I, if I feel strongly about it to see what people are saying, but beforehand i i barely care for, for me i have so much i i want to watch and so not enough time to watch the things i want to. so i only have time for like the great things i don't want to waste my time with things that aren't good right so but, i use metacritic to but, help me sort it but what about when there's contrast between the the critic score and the audience score because like both metacritic imdb and rotten tomatoes have that distinction well here's the thing about me is if you've listened to any of these episodes you you'll know that i'm a snob (laughs) and so that's why i tend to agree with the critical consensus and i never i never go by the user um ratings on imdb because i always disagree with it and i end up judging the users (laughs) there's a quick quick recap of what we've learned this episode russ pretentious casey snob david Keeping it real. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> David, hashtag arrogant. David, uh, da- hashtag David is arrogant. David's the rare case of someone that was hugged too much as a child. <laughs> That's why he likes these movies about self-esteem, because he's so into himself. David I has think, a, a I think false... those are important lessons. David has a, a false sense of self-grandeur. <laughs> if only ever... David's thinking when he's watching A Wrinkle in Time, if only everyone thought they were as great as I think I am. <laughs> what was the, the little girl's name again? Uh, Meg. 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 If Meg just felt the way that I feel about myself, <laughs> she would have beat the darkness in no time. Uh, so David, you are going to fel- backfire. People are going to people are going to side with me. <laughs> That's true. And by people, you mean your little cohort of friends that you've kind of hired <laughs> hired to support you. We know who no, you no. are, people. We know who you are. <laughs> Anyway, oh man, I feel uh, like I feel like that was the wrong, the wrong <laughs> path to go down. <laughs> anything, uh, anything else about Metacritic? Uh-huh. <laughs> I think we've covered it. All right, that was <laughs> discuss. Okay, we're gonna move on now into the meat of our episode, and we actually have a guest host. His name's David Ryan Anderson. Hey. He's gonna take over the host chair for a couple minutes here, and he's gonna. Lay out the premise of this week's episode, David. Yeah, so this is an episode I've been wanting to do since uh, since we started this. Uh, oh, wait, ten episodes ago. And David, why are we doing it today? That's right. Today is the tenth anniversary of Film our podcast. first of our first episode of the podcast. This is our our tenth episode. That makes no sense, David. We've done ten episodes. We did ten episodes. This makes <laughs> this a lot of sense. This is episode ten. <laughs> Very straightforward. <laughs> So I think when I think uh, Megan, my wife, this is Russell speaking, by the way. Um, <laughs> I think when I told her I wanted to start a podcast, she thought we'd get to three episodes and then get bored with it. Oh, really? I think so. She wouldn't say that, but I think so. By the way, Russell is identifying himself because before the podcast, we talked about how 
Um, we're not sure if people can tell us apart when they're li- people have said they can't tell us apart when they're listening. So if Russ identifies himself, that's why that's happening. That was Casey, by the way. <laughs> David with the distinct voice and the looks of Toby Maguire. <laughs> Back to you. So a topic I really want to talk about is our favorite movie moments. Because as far back as I can remember, I've the movies have been summarized for me in these magical bits that I guess I would just like fantasize about, like either embodying or or they would embody some emotion or something that would like relate to real life. Like I would just in a way, this is gonna make me sound like Abed or something, but like I would cope with real life to a certain degree by imagining like how would the characters do it in the movie? Or something like that. Right. Uh, and I cope is maybe a strong word, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like we draw on these things. So, so David, can you define what a movie moment is? A movie moment, in my mind, is any... I, I feel like a beat, maybe a stronger or a better description of it. But just like some unit of measurement where there's a self-contained part of the movie that just communicates some emotion or or character thing or something like that just a very strong i don't know if that if that's what you guys were using is there like a time limit because some of my moments are long i i didn't i don't think we put a time limit on it okay good a lot of mine are actual moments but um Uh, but i don't think i'll allow it if i can have a runner up (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah no my list was like 30 things uh but we are we decided to limit ourselves to three each for this episode Unless you're Casey, and then you get a runner-up. And then Casey's going to be like, can I do the whole Star Wars trilogy? <laughs> can I do Godfather 2, 1, and a little bit of 3? I, guys, I narrowed it down to one Godfather moment for that reason. <laughs> okay, were, spoiler alert. There were movies in thinking about this topic, David, which, you know, I know I give you a lot of grief, but um, I do. I have, I'm a disciple of yours with regards to movie magic now. Oh, nice. Um, and I feel like there's some movies that the whole movie is just basically one long magical moment. Yeah. And uh, as I was reflecting on that, I, I was just struck by a couple movies that just like, wow. E.T. You know, put in the entirety of Jurassic Park. Yeah. Well, like uh, Jurassic Park. Are you kidding me? E.T. Uh, no, Jurassic Park is magical. You were born I, I in the wrong decade. I agree. E.T. Casey, come Casey on, you're guys, too old. E. You're not the right audience for Jurassic Park. You don't get it. That's See, we didn't grow say. up with E.T. like you did. So, like, that, it would make sense that E.T. is, like, your Jurassic Park. Oh, man. It seems obvious and definitive to me. But I grew up Okay, so if Casey gets a runner-up, I want a runner-up, too. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I want a runner-up, too. Okay. What is this? Where is right, it the top four? It's officially four movie No, no, no. <laughs> Here's what we'll do. With the runner-up, you can't... We can't discuss it. You just no get further discussion. It. I like that. Yeah, I'll just list okay. something. All right. So, without any further ado... This wait, wait. Our... Do we want to talk? Do we want to talk a little bit about how we developed our list at all? Yeah, let me just do my little uh, uh, Academy Award intro. Sure. And now, without any further ado, we present to you the 2018 magical movie moments of the Film Lovers Podcast of all time. Of all time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. So David uh, just asked us how did what was our criteria? Like quick. My, I just went with my favorites. I had a list that was a mix of favorites and the ones that I thought were like historical or the the best, and so I just narrowed it down to my favorites. All right, 
I threw subjectivity out the no. I threw objectivity out the window. Me too. And I just said, actually, for two of these, these are two scenes that I just, I, I don't know why. They're kind of random, but they just, whenever I'm daydreaming or like kind of driving or just kind of mindlessly thinking, these are two scenes that just constantly pop into my head for whatever reason. That was Russell, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> just to clarify. So, like, say you're at the doctor's office and your phone's battery died and you're just kind of sitting, losing your mind. All the magazines got stolen. Um, My favorite movie moments are the moments I kind of daydream about. Sure. For me, what I noticed, I, I did like Casey. I was, just, I was just writing movie moments that I liked. And what I realized, this weird pattern came up where I love moments of great anticipation and great payoff to anticipation. And uh, that just seemed like it was just naturally what my list was. David, you need to get married, man. That's like it sounds like a wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, he's single. Thanks. Um, cool. Well, without further ado, our runner-up. Who wants to go first? My runner-up is like. The crazy the monsters got loose scene in Cabin in the Woods. With all the monsters you've ever seen in any movie just going nuts, killing people. Let's get this party started. That's an amazing moment. That is great. We're not, that, we're not a, allowed to discuss it. Okay. As okay. per the rules. <laughs> okay, I'll just say real quick, that's awesome. <laughs> that is that is that is an awesome scene. Yeah, yes, no, I, I remember agree. loving that when that happened. I, I was like, that's I approve. so cool. Okay. Uh David, do you want to go next? Or should I? Yeah. So um I talk a lot about children of men that mo- this movie on the podcast. Oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and children Ch- of Men David is one of those movies. Brings up children of men every episode. This was my number four. Hey David, uh, Children of Men is your movie pass. That- <laughs> so this movie, this like Russ is saying, this whole movie is movie a, a, an incredible movie moment. But there is this one point. Where there, I don't, I don't even know if people are going to re- remember this, even if you know the movie. There is a sound cue that happens before this extended, like twelve-minute long shot, where they're running through a battlefield. But there's just like this horn, this siren that goes off that like warns that there is like war coming. And I every single time I watch the movie, when that horn goes off, that's this siren. I just get so excited yeah. because I know that. It's just like a mad dash to the end of the movie, and it's just nonstop, like, excellent filmmaking. And doesn't the, doesn't the horn happen after kind of a quieter moment? 
Yeah, there's a really quiet moment where they're like they're like gearing up and getting ready to go. They're like hanging the out at the house, off. right? Yeah, so yeah, they're they're like they're having like the last like chill moment before they. All like, right, the we're not really supposed kicks. to ex- explain. I just wanted to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember that. I remember it very distinctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is cool. I wonder. Yeah, I I hope that all these moments are evocative. All right, there's gonna be a crossover. Um, David described this one that I'm about to share as like, this is like the Russell moment, kind of like. Give you a window into your like aesthetic. So, my uh, runner-up would be the yearbook montage in Rushmore. Uh, it's over the song "Making Time" by Creation, and it goes through all of Max Fisher's different clubs that he was involved in during the school year, which he was in like I think twenty different clubs. That's like one of the great moments of Wes Anderson's career. Right. He, he's a beekeeper. He's part of the skeet shooting team. He has a, he's a yearbook editor. And the most funny one, I think, is he's the director of the Max Fisher Players. Yeah. <laughs> he like started his little theater troupe in a private grade school. Um, but I just uh, I feel like that is a magical moment because it kind of defines what Wes Anderson's going to go on to do for the rest of his career i think um yeah it's really a, a metaphor for for his movie making cool all right so those were our runner-ups let's get into the actual list i'll count us down i'll start off number three okay my number three moment is from the incredibles oh it's the moment that again this is a moment like the whole movie is made up of magic moments but for me, the reason that uh, I'm sorry, the moment that I'm thinking of is when they're on the jet going to the island, and the missile—it's—it's it's, um, what's her name, Mrs. Incredible—and the kids are all on the plane, and the bad guy launches the missile. It's going to the plane, and they're just freaking out. Not only that, like, oh no, we're gonna die, but like our kids are going to die. And this moment is one of the best I've seen at capturing, like, the fear of, like, parental, just, just like, 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 care for a child. And, like, this terror in the, in light of the idea that, like, they, like, they might be killed. It, I don't know how to explain it besides that, but, like, it, it captures this thing that is haunting, I think. What, what, dying? No, 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 not that she's <laughs> going to die, that her kids are going to die. Why? You have to put a force field around the plane. But you said we weren't supposed to use our power. I know what I said. Listen to what I'm saying now. Disengage, repeat. Disengage. Mom? Violet! Mayday, Mayday! India Gulf 909 are his buddy spy. Abort, abort. There are children aboard. Say again, there are children aboard this. No! trying to remember i don't remember I don't this remember. part it's been you don't like, remember this part of the movie it's been like 20 years since i've seen it i haven't seen it since incredibles it is really good i remember it, the part when she's like hey mrs par uh jack jack is going a little crazy right now this yeah, is yeah. kari <laughs> no that well, was a great movie moment <laughs> i no, i i strongly that 
that was like the moment that I realized like I love the movie, I think. Cuz it was it's like difficult to watch, I think. Cuz it like just captured a, a sense of uh, a mother's care for her children. That but the, like the terror of losing them in a way that I I don't I can't think of another movie off the top of my head that does it as strongly as that. Hmm. It it's affecting for me. I don't know, yeah. Cool. So uh you guys how- don't remember, that's fine. Did you say anything, Casey? You're just going to sit quietly. I've got nothing to say about The Incredibles. I just haven't seen it in like 20 years. There's a new one coming out. There we go. <laughs> you have you seen the trailer? You could try to draw yeah. David out like, oh, David, uh, sounds like you have some other issues or something going on there. <laughs> Is that how you wish your mom felt about you? Or <laughs> No, I mean, the... I I imagine a, like the terror of losing children. I mean that that sound that sounds like it would be a powerful part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not expecting you guys to say anything in particular. I'm just like I know no, I think Russ needs me to say things at the, after people say. Well, things. you just gotta you know it's kind of a two person podcast right now. But <laughs> anyway, Casey, let's hear from you. Call you quiet man. Yeah, um, this is gonna three. surprise you guys, but uh, no, be- wait, wait, number three. We already did that. The, you you did it for yourself. <laughs> the first ten minutes of Up, it's like a silent film. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's not surprising. I love it. I think it's so touching and heartfelt. But just the the um, the storytelling without any dialogue, it's really amazing. Yeah, it's a tearjerker. Wait, were you, you sounded surprised when I said it. No, I said, are you kidding me out of context? I'll have to explain it after we're done talking about Up. Sorry. Oh, uh, okay. I thought you guys might be surprised that I picked an animated film, though. No, I I, I, I think that's a great... If you're going to pick an animated film, that's a great moment. Mm-hmm. It's just pure storytelling, that that whole bit. Yeah, that's, gr- that's a great way to put it. It's pure horse storytelling. Yeah. It, yeah, in a way that elevates the entire rest of the movie after that fact. Because the rest of the movie is not that that good but yeah they pe- they peaked in the yeah. first no i love minutes. i love it's probably one of my favorite it, it may be my favorite pixar movie it's definitely up there um but no i think you're right david because just film film is best when it tells stories visually uh yeah. russ says show me not tell me and and they do it so <laughs> well russ did not russ did not make that up i would like to make that clear oh no, russ I, did make it i up. coined the phrase show don't tell <laughs> <laughs> I also coined the phrase mise-en-scene. <laughs> but I also think it's a sign. I I also think it's a sign that um, they're not just giving us what we want. They're not um, go, taking the path of least resistance. They're trying to do something beautiful and excellent through the way they tell the story by doing it in a silent way. I think it's very daring. Now, David, as someone that prefers like overt exposition of plot, was that scene <laughs> not? Was that scene hard for about? you when you first saw it? <laughs> Brutal. What do you mean when you say overt exposition? I like I like when the things are clearly clearly defined. Yeah, like and clearly that is defined that, and like plain detail and no that that which, is what I mean. That is what this that bit does. That's why it's so effective. So it's pretty hard for you to watch because there are no words in it. 
don't know words, but there it's it's so clear what's happening at every single moment. There is no ambiguity. But you like didn't have Rose to like explain the moral to you at the end of it. You're never gonna. Oh my God. She, she has like the fact that I enjoyed some people. Ah, I won't even get to get into this. On we don't have time. Okay, because um, the bad dialogue in the Last Jedi—it's Disney's fault. Disney overpowered the directors, just like they did to Ava DuVernay in the Wrinkle in Time. You have Disney issues. Bob Iger—he's—he's he's taking over. Ah, it's ridiculous. Okay, but can I just say with Up, that scene is all so brutal. Yeah, it's—it's it's like you're just feeling good, and then bam, she dies. Which is why no. it's part of its power. Yeah. Okay, here's why I said, are you kidding me? Because my number three, you guys want to do the number? Number no. three is, uh, David, don't be mad at me. Come on. I'm just messing around. I don't know. <laughs> Your uh, fan club will make you feel better. Don't worry. That whole restaurant <laughs> of people who think you're Toby McGuire. <laughs> just go back to your restaurant. Okay, no, uh, my number three is also a Pixar movie. <laughs> Nice. So mine's a little strange. Um, I did Toy Story. That's not strange. But the Can moment, the moment, the moment I picked. Uh, so Toy Story to me is one of those movies that's just one magic moment for an hour and a half, basically. Yeah. That movie is like close to flawless in my mind. Um, but the scene I picked was when Woody and Buzz are beneath the semi truck at the gas station. Or beneath the car or whatever. And they're having that argument about what they should do next. And Woody and Buzz are just kind of uh, arguing. I actually wanted to quickly play the, the clip. So here we go. You have it queued up? No. <laughs> David. Uh, so, but through the through the magic of editing. According to my Nava computer. The... Shut up. Just shut up, you idiot. Sheriff, this is no time to panic. This is the perfect time to panic. I'm lost. Andy is gone. They're going to move from their house in two days and it's all your fault. Mike, my fault? If you hadn't pushed me out of the window in the first place. Oh, yeah. Well, if you hadn't shown up your stupid little cardboard spaceship and taken away everything that was important to me. Don't talk to me about importance. Because of you, the security of this entire universe is in jeopardy. What? What are you talking about? Right now, poised at the edge of the galaxy, Emperor Zerg has been secretly building a weapon with the destructive capacity to annihilate an entire planet. I alone have information that reveals this weapon's only weakness. And you, my friend, are responsible for delaying my rendezvous with Star Command! You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear, you're, you're, uh, you're an action figure! You are a child's plaything! You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. Farewell. Oh yeah, well, good riddance, you loony! But so, so what he, what he, that line where he says, you are a toy. And it's like, um, it's this first moment of real conflict between Buzz and, and Woody where they're both giving it to each other. And it's just like, yeah. I feel like that's when they kind of crack the door open to them becoming friends. And um, it has some other great lines like, this is the perfect time to panic. Or uh, yeah, Buzz yeah. Lightyear, my, probably my favorite line of the movie, uh, you are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. You know, I, I think it's fitting that Pixar, we all had it on our list because Pixar, I mean, it, they're so good at storytelling, but in particular what that scene is, is that is the bridge too far kind of moment that Pixar does so excellently. Yeah, like They are so absolutely. great at that. 
that turn into the this dangerous underworld for the characters to suddenly like enter into and they do it so satisfyingly yeah they're so good at that yeah um and and basically though after that they go to pizza planet and that whole pizza planet sequence is probably my favorite part of the movie um but after honestly, that they go to like, Sid's house, and then after that, they do the rocket. And... Yeah, that that whole movie is just one amazing moment after another. So, it is a great movie. All right, Pixar, you have mastered movie magic. My own number three for us. Way to go. All right, could I do number two? Yeah. Number two. I'll do my number two first, because we've got a crossover, guys. So my, my number two has already been mentioned. Oh, what is it? It was on Casey's list. Up? It No. It is the system purge from Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Are you kidding? That moment is incredible. It I is. was my it, legs it. were shaking. I was so giddy. The because like you see this zoo of movie <laughs> monsters that they, they have in this facility. Yeah. And they just kind of like pass through and you're like, oh, that was a cool scene. I wish we got to see more. And the moment, the dawning realization that there is a button that will unleash the entirety of like horror icons on this film is, and, and they, they milk it for like, they milk it for like just long enough for your imagination to run wild. And then it just like punches in and like those doors burst open and every single creature just emerges and like starts causing mayhem. And it's, it is so perfect. It's such a perfect moment as far as I'm concerned. I think Joss Whedon is a pop culture genius. Yeah, he really is. I mean, he he understands pop culture so well and he's able to like have this like meta perspective on pop culture um, while telling great stories in an excellent way. I think he's just amazing. Yeah. Well, and also like uh, Whedon in his work on the Avengers, like he fought for a couple key scenes of just like, kind of what you could describe as like mindless banter you know like yeah uh one scene when they're sure. like in a house waiting just kind of hanging out and then in age of ultron when they're doing like the who can pick up thor's hammer scene mm-hmm. like those were scenes that is that, probably um, the best scene i think what i that's my favorite scene of that movie yeah and like those scenes were you know like the producers one of those scenes cut because they're like what does that do to the movie but like Whedon's so good at knowing like humanity and and how those those movies just how those moments give characters dimension and he he is I I agree like just great at knowing what's going to resonate with people. Yeah, yeah, and I mean I'm I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that whole show is about like kind of toying with our expectations of like high school drama and also um, horror movies. And so it's this meta commentary on these genres while fully engaging in them. And it's just amazing. And Cabin in the Woods, if you watch a lot of Buffy, there's a lot of similarities between Cabin in the Woods and Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. in those regards. Yeah. I want to rewatch Cabin in the Woods now. Haven't heard you guys talk about it. I'm like, oh, I just want to see I watched that movie so many times. I want to rewatch Children of Men, David. I'm serious. Oh, good. You should. All right. David's was uh, Cabin in the Woods, the, the system purge. System purge. All right. I'll do my number two. Sound good? Yep. All right. Um, I'm going to live up to my uh, reputation of being pretentious. I'm going to do a <laughs> moment from the master. 
Paul Thomas Anderson's tragically underrated and underawarded masterpiece from 2012. Um, I just rewatched this actually. And when I first saw this, I've only seen this movie twice now. The first time I saw it back in 2012, you know, six years ago, I, I hated it. I was like, what the heck did I just watch? That was a waste of time. But I don't know. It's like some people have been talking about it and I was like, I just need to rewatch it. And I, I, I got to rewatch it again, kind of knowing what the movie was. And I I just had to like repent. Like this movie is a masterpiece. Like <laughs> it was phenomenal. Um, I have to say I haven't seen it because the medic the Metacritic score was low. Are you kidding? I think so. Oh no! No, you you should watch it. All right, so I had I'm privately guessing what your scene is. What my scene? No, no, I didn't no, no, say Russ. my scene oh, yet. Oh, <laughs> Casey. Okay, so, uh, so I had two very different experiences watching this movie in 2012 and in 2018, but both times I watched it, this scene just stuck into my brain. I think about this scene probably more than any scene of any movie. And I don't know why, but um, it's near the beginning of the movie. Freddie Quell accidentally poisoned a guy and he like runs away from these people. And he's like, it's just, there's this cool tracking shot of him running and it fades to the scene of him walking down uh, a road. And basically he comes across this yacht where Lancaster dot is and, that's the master of the movement, the cause. But this uh, scene's one continuous cut, and it the focus shifts between Freddie Quell and the boat, back to Freddie Quell to the boat, and then Johnny Greenwood's score behind it is like this really dissonant, like kind of woodwind music playing, mm-hmm. and it's just like Freddie Quell coming upon that boat was just totally random and kind of in a moment of his drunken stupor, and the camera work and kind of the bokeh effect of the lights was just so memorable to me and just captured like inebriation so well and kind of set the scene for Freddie is like this super unstable character. And there was this visual manifestation of instability as the focus shifted back and forth and back and forth. And you're about to go onto a boat and it kind of gives you that like kind of, you know, when you're inebriated, like you kind of feel like you're on water at times, like your head spins and, um, I don't know why, but like, I, I remember sitting in the theater, I saw it on like that big, like supermax projection and I was just like, oh my gosh, that's powerful. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like the, I'm glad you put that. Yeah. We put a scene on here. That's just like purely sort of like visual and, and drawing and emotion. Casey, you were talking about the idea of like Joss Whedon playing our emotions or whatever and expectations and things. I think that the things that these movie moments do so well, so far at least, is uh, like making us into an instrument to be played by the movie, like a musical instrument. And you just like give yourself over and they're like, you're going to feel this and you're going to do this and blah, blah, blah. And they're like guiding us. Not all movies have to be that way, but I think that it's so powerful when we like give ourselves over to the movie, like knowing how to elicit these things in us. And I don't know. I think yeah. that's probably a good example of that. And, and I, I think I wanted to like pay homage to the long take. Cause I think mm-hmm. in cinema, the long take is probably my favorite thing. Um, what do you call that? It's my favorite motif. 
of technique. like technique, whatever. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. I love long takes. Like you know, you Goodfellas, the player, um, touch of evil, touch of evil, mm. uh, all of Birdman, and Paul Thomas Anderson. He has used a long take in his movies, like in Boogie Nights. Is a very, it's very derivative from the Goodfellas. Like clearly pulled from the Goodfellas. But There's two really famous ones in that one, yeah. What's cool about this long take is that it's subtle. You don't know it is, it's a long take necessarily. It's not super overt, but there's still a ton of coordination that had to take place between what was happening on the boat and uh, Joaquin Phoenix movement towards the boat. And it's it's about a two and a half minute uh, shot. And it, it's, I don't know, I think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those always stand out to me. They're really amazing. Um I haven't seen that movie, but I love the the opening scene. To Touch of Evil is probably my favorite long take. So I think they're really impressive and stand out. Yeah. You know crack. what my favorite long take is? Let me guess. The one from Children of Men. Which one? There's so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who directed that again? That's Ineratu? Alfonso Cuaron. Cuaron, yeah. No, Cuaron's, uh, he he's a master of long take, I think. In, uh, gravity. The choreography necessary to build his movies are incredible. Yeah, in Gravity, in uh, Children of Men, in uh, Birdman, and then most he did not make Birdman. He didn't. It's <laughs> Inaratu. Oh, I get them confused. I'm sorry. Clearly, Koran's most impressive long take was in uh, Harry Potter three. There are some there, but David, I wanted to go back to the comment you made about um, directors. Um, filmmakers playing on our emotions and drawing us in emotionally to what they're doing. I think that's so true because I find myself, the movies I like the most are the ones that draw me in emotionally, get me to empathize with the characters. The ones I like the least are like more um, detached, more like intellectual movies. I don't like those as much for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Casey, uh, how about we hear your number two? My number two, my number two and my number one are big spoilers. So my number two is my... Wait, wait. Spoiler alert. <laughs> my number two is the climactic scene in The Usual Suspect when you find... The Usual Suspects when you find out that Verbal Kent is actually Kaiser Sose. That moment changed my life. Convince me. And tell me every you know, last back when I was in that barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. Where's your head, Agent Kuyan? What we need to do is think... Think back. I'm sure you've heard many tall tales. Bricks Marlin. This isn't right. I just want to hear your story. It's all there. And I'm telling it straight, I swear. Some guy in California, his name is Redfoot. The gift from Mr. Sose. Talk to me, Verbal. What about Redfoot? Mr. Redfoot knew nothing. Using pawns. Big, fat guy. I mean, like, orca fat. There was a lawyer. Myths and legends of Kobayashi. Back when I was picking beans in Guatemala, we used to make fresh coffee. I know you thought he was a good man. I know he was good. Tell me every last detail. The strangest thing. How do you shoot the devil in the back? This altar is protected from up on high by the prince. And tell me every last detail. What about a pretzel, man? What's your story? There was a lawyer. What lawyer, Verbal? I am Mr. Kobayashi. 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 Tell me every last detail. I work for Kaiser Sole. Convince me. Convince me. Convince me. David, this is an audio medium. No one can see you shaking your head. I, I didn't want people to know. You're shaking your head. Why are you shaking your head? That movie's great. I no that that is a, that is a legendary scene. I'll I'll agree with that. the The way that his pace slowly changes as he tra- like transforms like his identity. Yeah, like he, from, he goes from, from a cripple little, to like walking normally. 
to being this, yeah, this crime lord guy. Yeah, no, it it, it is a really well done scene. I can't argue with that. Thank you. It's yes. um when when he when he looks at the wall and he like he drops his coffee because he sees uh, Kobayashi yeah. and yeah. the different he starts noticing all the connections. Made up yeah. in this. I know David doesn't like that part. I think it's great. Well, it's almost like um, I think what happened with that movie is it's been like spoiled too much because uh, everyone knows the twist now. So it's kind of like I don't I don't know how to describe this phenomenon that happens sometimes in movies, but like in in its moment, it was such a great twist like no one no one saw that coming but i think now like for maybe people more like david like there's a a cynicism that they have towards it or something like what's your beef with usual suspects i don't totally get it i mean a few things for one thing i just nope i I don't want to get into this too much but i just don't think it's very interesting and i think that the twist is predicated on a bunch of stuff that just doesn't matter it's not a twist that I think actually affects the story. It's the equivalent, in my mind, that twist is the equivalent to it was all a dream. Oh, uh, I don't think so. I think it's Especially more... because the details that he draws from on like the board and all of his surroundings to tell the story are, for the most part, not actual details that are relevant to the story. I know what it is. It, it was so monumental and it's been, it, it became parody. Because it's been parodied so much in like The Simpsons and other pop culture, I think those of us probably grew up with the parody that we did with the original. So then it's hard to appreciate the original because you just know the parody of it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. What's that phenomenon called? The paradization of scenes. What's caricatured? (laughs) Another another bit of terminology invented by Russ. Yeah, it's almost as good as mise en scène. I don't. Yeah, I don't get. Really I nicely. don't get that critique, David. To be honest, because uh, like the the things he got off the the bulletin board and th- like uh, the the props in the room were connected to like major characters in the story. And there's like, it's kind of like a mind puzzle because you're you're wondering like what parts are true and what parts were lies. Like it becomes this like appearance versus reality thing so i actually did that critique Uh that it was all just a dream i think it's more grounded in the plot and the narrative than you're giving it credit for yeah it's much more clever than a dream i guess but even like uh what was that tv show was it dallas yeah yeah. that dream twist was like it, it it was revolutionary. Yeah, I've heard about it. I don't actually know it, unfortunately. Yeah, they got a main JR, character. Is that something shot. to do with JR? Yeah, a main character is shot, and you think he's dead, and the next season they reveal it was a dream. Yeah. You're even younger than me, and you guys didn't the know Sim- Didn't the Simpsons do a similar thing? With the- oh, yeah, the Who Killed Mr. Burns. Yeah, there was an entire parody of that. Was it a dream, though? It wasn't. Maggie did it. Oh, Spoiler that's right. alert. <laughs> Cute little Maggie. Spoiler alert. Okay, guys. Casey, usual suspects. That's great. uh number one david you should go last because it's your concept good and i have the best one so all right you go first mine's the best for that remark you go first (laughs) all right no 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 i'm kidding i'll I'll go first i don't care okay i'm gonna uh i'll probably play the this the mine's a silent scene but i might play some of the audio in the background so my favorite movie moment as of today is the opening to back to the future with those with the music 
No. Don't need money. No, don't no, need no. fame. It's uh, I kind of I wrote it out actually. So what happens is, uh, it starts with clocks, a reference to time, and uh, there's a ton of clocks because Doc Brown loves clocks. It pans to a newspaper article, which is like a classic movie motif of using a newspaper article to exposit plot of Brown's mansion was destroyed. It then pans down, and this is one continuous shot, which I love continuous shots. Pans down to head busts of Edison, Franklin, and Einstein, famous inventors, and Einstein with time. Real subtle, all these props. It pans down to a bed covered in trash and fast food, which shows he's a busy man. It pans down to a coffee maker with no pot, which shows that he's a man of science, but also a bit absent-minded. It pans to more clocks. It pans to a TV turning on automatically. And the newscaster shares more plot about some missing plutonium. It then pans to some burnt toast, which again shows absent-minded. Hasn't been home for a while. It then has some automated dog food delivery, which shows he's an inventor. The dog food bowl is overflowing with food. It then pans not on a dog. What? And that, and that suggests he does not actually own a dog. No, it suggests that him and his dog haven't been home for a while because he does own a dog. The dog's name is Einstein. No, a joke. That's a joke. It then pans to Marty McFly opening the door with his skateboard and cool sneakers, and there's a key under the rug which shows that Doc Brown has an open door policy with his apprentice. And then the skateboard slides over and bumps, you guessed it, the hidden plutonium. Oh, boys, what have we stumbled into but the beginnings of a great movie? Basically, the whole plot in that opening scene. You don't get money. Don't get things. Man, that movie is so near and dear in my heart. Like, near and dear to my heart. Hearing you describe that scene just makes me want to go watch it right now. I love that movie so much. It's the best. It is. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but my parents... We used to dub movies from uh, like Hollywood Video or oh, that's you guys are terrible them. people. Yeah, it was like uh, the early with your own piracy. audio. So you would like put a VHS tape in your VCR and then connect it to your camcorder, and you could like oh, not not like audio dubbing. No, you would dub it onto a VHS tape. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> and um, our copy of Back to the Future <laughs> was on a dub, and I just remember like the very beginning credits would kind of like wave a little from like the yeah. film kind of getting sorted out. But uh, I've seen Back to the Future probably more than any movie. And, and that just like how it kind of sets the the beginning of the plot, basically. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, not so subtle ways, but like um, I just love that technique of like using props and a couple like news clips to kind of establish character and establish place. And um, plot, I think, is just really fun. And, you know... It's funny you mentioned... Oh. Back to the Future, I think, did it masterfully. But a, a lot of movies do this. I think Pixar has pulled on that technique very well. But Talk- And, you know, what movie does this really well all over the place? Is it your Children number one? Men. Children of Men does this all over. Oh, my gosh. Um, when you were describing that scene, uh, it made me actually think of Pee-wee's Big Adventure in the the scene where it's showing like where yeah. Pee-wee lived. Yeah, it's a similar thing. Yeah, he's got that Rube Goldberg breakfast making device that crazy geniuses have in movies. I feel like it was like a, a trope of the '80s and '90s. Yeah, like the panning. It's a bizarrely specific one. What? It's a bizarrely specific trope. Yeah, but, but like, you're right. It was all over panning through props to like establish place time and character 
Uh, let me just say about Back to the Future. We were talking about movie magic. That movie is full of it. Yeah. Um, there's, mm-hmm. I don't like. What is there about that movie that connects for people so so profoundly? I don't know. People just love that movie, and I'm I I'm one of them, and I I can't yeah. explain it really. It transcends age groups too, because I feel like um, different ages of people enjoy that movie. It's very 80s, but it transcends the 80s too. Yeah. yeah. All right, that's my number one. Who wants to go next? Oh, Casey, go ahead. Okay, um, mine is the climactic scene in. Can I, can I guess? I think I know. What? I think you gave it away already. Go ahead. No, you say it. You say okay. it. Oh, Never the mind. Godfather when yeah, it's the, the Godfather the baptism. Yep, it's yeah. the Godfather yeah, baptism scene. Um, oh, Russ yeah. and I just saw the Godfather in the theater again for my birthday a few weeks ago. So good to see on in the on the big screen. It really pays off to see it that way. I think they like remastered it or whatever. But there is so much in that movie. It's so amazing. But that montage is is really effective in um, the way that they go back and forth between the baptism and the assassination of the heads of the crime families. It's it's just a very effective, masterfully composed montage doesn't the priest like say to him like michael corleone do you reject satan and all evil yeah yeah, yeah. and then he shoots yeah oh, it's so powerful mm-hmm. michael francis Ritzing, do you renounce satan i do renounce him I do renounce them. I I was just listening to an interview with Al Pacino today, and did you know that um, Coppola and a lot of the like people on the crew they didn't like how Pacino was acting at the beginning of the movie, they thought he was like too reserved for a mobster. Mm-hmm. And th- he almost got cut from the movie. Wow. Cause of that. It makes it so much better. Cause yeah, the transformation. Yeah. That's what I yeah, thought. That's one of the most powerful parts of that, of that character. But Pacino said he's, he has never viewed Michael Corleone as a mobster through his whole life. Cause he just approached it so differently. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah. I mean, the way he played that role is very specific. Um, and I, I mean, if, if you think about it in the first two movies, the third movie is totally different. He plays it very reserved in a very reserved way. Yeah. So there, I think there's continuity from that, that for the Michael we first see through the second, the end of the second right. film that he's very like, um, just he's reserved, but also very deliberate all yeah. the time. Super deliberate. Yeah. But like he couldn't, he didn't know how to explain that to Coppola cause he was like his second movie, but he's like. You know, I'm, I'll get there. I'm just being reserved as the character because I think that's how the character would be. But I just can't imagine a world where Al Pacino isn't Michael Corleone. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, maybe he was so reserved throughout The Godfather, he had to be like ridiculously unreserved the rest of his career because he just now he just Wah! yells all the time. Exactly. He, he changed his name from Al Pacino to Yell, Yell Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, obligatory laugh. Did All right. Did you guys ever see Jack and Jill? No. 
It's the Adam Sandler movie where Adam Sandler plays uh, twins. I bet that has a high Metacritic score. Uh, no, it's horrible. But Al Pacino is in the movie as like a side character. And the whole premise is they want to get Al Pacino to sell Dunkachinos for Dunkin' <laughs> yeah. Donuts. You mentioned this in our last episode. <laughs> Did I? I? Did you? I don't think in so. A pre- in a recent episode, you mentioned it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just think it's it's a metaphor for his career. <laughs> He makes right. a commercial. Spoiler alert. <laughs> all right, David. You guys ready for the greatest movie moment of all time? Sure, David. Rosebud. Sure, David, who has hugged too much as a child. Go have ahead. Have you... I don't know if you have seen this movie by Darren Aronofsky. The movie is The Fountain uh. with Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz. Have you seen this movie? Are you serious? This, this, this is, is anticlimactic. We go from The Godfather to You're the picking fountain. like the most obscure and least liked Aronofsky movie? <laughs> uh maybe but the the climax of this film is like i don't i'm not even entirely sure how to describe this moment of the movie it's such a perfect blend of wait wait wait! don't describe it just pick a different movie <laughs> no, no no i this movie is one of this almost made my top 10 list of all time list the fountain is he's digging in no so the fountain is this real very basic plot synopsis the fountain is a movie that takes place possibly through these three different time periods with Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz. Oh, and it wow. ends in the future. It starts like way in the past, like they're conquistadors. It ends in the future, and they're trying to find the secret to immortality, basically. Yeah, the fountain of youth. And, right, so it ends with Hugh Jackman in space, and there is this bizarre cosmic experience, is the best way I can put it. But it is so purely... <laughs> cinema like it is like this could not have been done with any other medium The combination of one of the greatest film scores, I think, by Clint Mansell. He's this composer who does great film scores. The combination of this incredible film score with just these, like, absolutely beautiful, like, indescribable visuals that are going on. It, I don't know, I, I, like, it cannot be described any other way. Like, you just have to experience this moment from the fountain, the climax of the film. I don't even know. You guys writing notes about me? What's going on? <laughs> uh, no, you managed to make K- both Casey and I go on our phones to look up the Metacritic score. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? 51. Um, but you'll be happy to know that it's not near, not quite as low as Jack and Joe, which is a r- red-colored <laughs> 23. <laughs> Dunkachinos by Al Pacino. <laughs> um, David, I, I, I'm... I'm speechless. I cannot believe you picked the. Have fountain. you seen it, Russ? I've seen the. Fu- yeah, I've seen everything. Okay, Aronofsky why don't you reflect did. on what he said? I can't. I haven't seen it. Yeah, uh, what do you think about the movie? I, I don't. I would never describe that movie as memorable, and it's not like one of the. I was frustrated the whole movie, to be honest, when I saw it the the first time. And what frustrated by what? It just. Uh, 
it felt uh oh it felt a touch self serious i guess and i just couldn't i couldn't latch onto the plot at any point yeah personally darren aronofsky so serious really (laughs) (laughs) no but i i feel like okay yeah he's he's self-serious in general but he he i don't know he's he made the wrestler too like he's a great filmmaker so um not what i would have picked david this hey it's my list that's what i picked this is my favorite moment in film it every time i am just astonished at what i'm watching it's incredible all right, I I will, I will watch it again. I probably yeah. won't watch it, but I will rewatch Children of Men. Sure, yeah. No, The Fountain. Not everybody likes. Not everybody even likes Aronofsky, but The Fountain I can see is being maybe inaccessible. But I just feel like it's it's such a purely emotional movie. I don't like. It's a very um, it's a very David Anderson choice. Here's why. <laughs> you, Lots of exposition. No, this no, movie, no. This no, movie would no have been this movie would have been served by a touch more exposition. Yeah. <laughs> I think David, I think you like there's certain things that resonate with you that I will never understand mm-hmm. like a wrinkle in time. Um <laughs> but I I appreciate that when you do like something, you dig in and and you have your your rationale behind it. Even though I can't comprehend it, I know that it's like when you talk about the Lost World Jurassic Park and that little kid with the glasses like I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I appreciate that you're talking about it and that you believe it. And you explain it well. Yeah. Yeah. So I would not have picked the fountain out of Aronofsky's uh, Ovor. How do you say that? Ovor? Ovor. If I'm going to be accused of being pretentious, I'm just going all in. (laughs) Ovor. We have to go pronounce it in order to be pretentious. This is Russell, by the way, pronouncing Ovor. It's (laughs) Ovor. What about like in Black Swan when she starts growing the wings? That's pretty cool. It's like it's cool, but it, it's nothing on that as as far like as just in, the uh, visuals. In Pi, when his fingers like shaking above the return button, I don't like I press Pi. It? Should I press it? Should I press it? I love Aronofsky. He's my he's one Pi is the only Aronofsky film that I really have no desire to ever watch again. That how that's how I felt about the fountain. Interesting. Yep. There's so oh, many, there's so many interesting editing choices and things in that in that movie. Also, uh, what's that one with all the the drugs? Right, uh, for not a dream. Time. That's not a that's not a rewatchable. That movie's so dark. Oh man, you're David. Haven't you seen that Pre- movie like ten times? I watched. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream is also one of my favorite movies. I really like Aronofsky. Um, you. Oh, we have that in common. Requiem for a Dream is is a, a is a really good movie. I I can't ever watch it again, but. All I mean, right, that whole uh, that whole final montage um, almost made my list. I'm gonna check out. Uh, I'll check out the fountain again, and I'll I'll, I'll bring it up. Okay. But uh, film lovers, that was our first ever attempt at our top movie moments of all time. Well, uh, we weren't expecting to talk about Wrinkle in Time, so we're a little long today. But let's not miss out on an opportunity to love we need more love in this world that's why we're film lovers what is something you guys love this week i'll go first because mine is a little disappointing maybe (laughs) uh i saw a lot of things i did not love but one thing i do love is the ability of social media to give me an outlet to make things like uh i'm trying to do new reviews and things and uh (laughs) That is, it's something I love doing. I love talking about movies, doing movies. 
all kind of outlets. Uh, so that's what I love this week. The opportunity. So what I'm hearing is you love, I know what you're going to say. You love being able to make film criticism on social media. Sure. I mean, criticism has a negative connotation, but just talk about movies, like make it a thing that, you know, it doesn't have a negative connotation in my mind. I mean, it doesn't for me, but I'm afraid people will. Outrage culture. You're afraid of outrage culture. Sure. I get it. it sounds pretentious. <laughs> um, I don't trust no, the hey, people's David, I, I, I respect that. I, I think it's cool the things you're creating and doing um, with Thanks. the podcasts and the redemptive reviews. So I, I like that you spend your time doing that. I agree. I think I think this world is full of two people. It's the people that create content like us and then it's the haters and i'm just glad that uh you're making content in spite of the haters but i'm not a hater well you're a hater but uh you're also making <laughs> you're also making content i've I, earned the right to be a hater yeah you've earned it Ugh. so uh what you love is a touch self-involved but yeah i was afraid okay. it would seem that way no it's fine i think it's fine sure i'm into it because david i love you Thank you. I love all of you. All right. Can I go second? I'll sure. You. All right. Casey mentioned that we saw The Godfather on the big screen a couple weeks ago. Happy birthday, Casey. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. I love Al Pacino. Here's why. Mm-hmm. You ready? Bobby in A Panic in Needle Park. Michael in The Godfather. Serpico in Serpico. Sonny in Dog Day Afternoon. Tony Montana in Scarface. Big Boy Caprice and Dick Tracy. Carlito in Carlito's Way. What was yeah. the movie you said? Donnie Brasco. Donnie Brasco. Vincent. Oh, my handwriting's bad. In Heat. <laughs> he played Satan himself in The Devil's Advocate. Mm-hmm. That amazing coach in Any Given Sunday. Roy Cohn in Angels in America. And in two weeks, he will be Joe Paterno in Paterno. Really? really? I didn't what? know that. Al Pacino has given America and the world some of the most iconic performances and lines, such as, Okay, I'm reloaded! (laughs) (laughs) Or, uh, oh, what does he say? Say Uh, hello to my little friend. Oh, yeah, that's Scarface as well. But what does he say to, um, to his brother when he's about to kill him? Like, he kisses him on the, on the mouth. He says, I knew it was you. Fredo. Fredo. Dang it. I should have looked up the line. I'm very was it, disappointed. I, I know it was you. I know it was you. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. Yeah. Um, dark day afternoon. It's uh, Wait, I know it was you you've broken my heart. I know Fredo, you. you broke my heart, Fredo. You broke my heart. Yeah. Attica. Um, yeah. Attica. Attica. No, he was my he was my favorite actor through high school, like through the '90s. He was my favorite actor. I I mean, in the last twenty years, he hasn't done as much, but he's like when you read that list, it's amazing. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's like it's not just that it's good acting; it's that it's iconic acting. Like, yeah, his clips are clips that you see in montages over and over and over again. And, and I just think like for a guy that almost got cut from The Godfather, like that's pretty impressive. Yeah, he's I'll amazing. go. Casey, I will go this far. He rivals Tom Cruise oh. as greatest actor of our generation. <laughs> oh my gosh! 
I'm not dethroning Cruz because I still think Cruz has him by a little bit. <laughs> Wait, how are you serious, being serious? How are serious are you being right now? Oh, I'm dead serious. We're gonna. I you're, can, you're you're serious with that comment about Tom Cruise? I'll Tom, go to my grave with this. And the thing about Tom Cruise is, it's, oh my god, Tom Cruise. We haven't had his old man career yet, where he stops being an action star and when goes he's back to in accent. when he's in the Adam Sandler movies. <laughs> no, but like Tom Cruise has another probably twenty to thirty years of old man acting. Where, I want like, Tom. He's gonna, yeah, he's well, winning Oscars. Yeah, where he'll be Jor-El in a, a future <laughs> Superman movie. No. I can't wait for no, Tom but, Cruise, yeah, where he has no options left but to do his, like, Magnolia performances. Yeah, he's going to go back to those kind of movies, like, um, you know, Born on the Fourth of July, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, Magnolia. Like, you look look at his IMDb. He is one of the best actors I you know iconic. He he is a solid actor who's in really great movies. I I have a very high opinion of him as an actor, but like no way would I ever be like who's better, Tom Cruise or Al Pacino? It like in his or Daniel Day Lewis or Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm just saying, look at the movies. Meryl Streep. Okay, I'm like Tom Cruise has given us a lot of iconic performances. I I I'm like the Academy. I separate. You know, I have male lead, female lead. So I I'm not gonna put him against Meryl Hoffman, Daniel Day Lewis. I know, but quantity. Tom Cruise has been doing this for years, and he's gonna keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't love Tom Cruise this week. I love him every week. I love Al Pacino this week. Oh yeah, back to. Before your ridiculousness, when you actually had something good to say, Al Pacino is great. Yes, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a David. Can you help me make one of those videos so I can explain to the world? Just Tom a super Cruise's cut greatness. of. Oh, like actually, like talk about. Hey, if you want to write it, I'll make it. <laughs> Look at that. This is how right. deals get made. Uh, Casey, <laughs> hater, what do you love? <laughs> I saw a movie this week. Um, that I didn't know existed, but is kind of a big deal. It's called um, A Matter of Life and Death. Hmm. It's a British movie f- released in 1946. In the U.S., they cha- they didn't like the name, and so they changed the name to Stairway to Heaven. It was oh. directed by Ma- Ma- Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. They had a production company called The Archers. And apparently this is a, a big thing that I was just unaware of. Are you guys familiar with The Archers? No. no. Tell us about it. Um, this production company was huge in the forties and fifties, super influential. Scorsese was, um, watched their movies growing up and was really influenced by, by them. Um, their other two famous films are, well, they had a bunch of them, but their most famous ones are the black narcissus and the red shoes. Um, I think the red shoes in particular, Scorsese is like really into, um, they're often compared to Hitchcock and their sophistication artistically, um, combined with mass appeal, like how accessible. Wait, they wait, are. wait. The studio or um, the specific It's kind of director? like the Cohen Brothers. It's it's Pressburg. It's Powell and Pressburger. But I think the Archers studio. Like I think they are the Archers. Like they're the heart and soul of it. So you saw a documentary. No. Th- so this film. Um. It's basically it's a fantasy love story. It starts off with a a fighter pilot. Um. Who's about to crash into the English channel and he's talking to this woman over the intercom and they make a connection and um, they fall in love in the, in his conversation. And he, uh, there's a mistake in heaven. He's supposed to go to heaven, but um, he doesn't die. 
And so he um, he finds this woman and they um, have a relationship, but then heaven comes back for him to take him away. And then there's this courtroom battle about whether he should be able to continue his life or go to heaven. But um, the cinematography in this film, the set designs are really amazing. Like there's a literal stairway to heaven huh. in the courtroom and what um, year, what their year? vision of what heaven is, is, is really striking. What year was it made? 1946. Oh, okay. So it's an old movie. Yeah. And I, I think it sounds, the... It sounds a lot Nurse... like um, Jacob's Ladder. If you ever saw okay. that. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen Jacob's Ladder, but maybe it was... In... I mean, No, they're, no, no. They're... I'm sorry. No, don't. I thought you guys had seen it. That was a joke. Never mind. Oh, okay. Powell and Pressburger are... <laughs> Good one, David. <laughs> they're considered super influential filmmakers, though. So I'm confused. What's the name of the movie? <laughs> a Matter of Life and Death. <laughs> Okay, but oh, if you man. look it up Can, on Casey? IMDb in 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 England, it was a matter of life and death. In the U.S., it was released as Stairway to Heaven. So if you if you look up a matter of life and death on IMDb, it'll show up as Stairway to Heaven. Can I just say that that little anecdote is a perfect metaphor for what's wrong with this country? Yeah, I, I agree. My gosh, that sucks. Wait, wait, wait. Which which anecdote? That, that they changed that they the change the name from a matter of life and death to a stairway to heaven. That's so lame. Well, it would be like the song. No, no, no. David, no. it came out in 46. I know. You doof. I know it. I'm sorry, A Matter of Life and Death. I just want to see what the Metacritic score is on this. You think this is a Criterion movie? I don't know if it's on Criterion, but it's Criterion level quality. Okay. It's. I mean, he's. Com- they're compared to Hitchcock a lot. Is it Criterion level boring? Ayo. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably find it boring, I think. I'm not um, even, I'm not even finding right. it. It's a on, black and white movie? On Metacritic. Um, well, it's 46. So an interesting thing they did is they thought that they um, the, the heaven scenes are black and white and the scenes on earth are in color. Oh, I would have Be- flipped that. I know. They they thought yeah. they thought people's expectations would be heaven would be in color yeah. in real life. So they, fl- they, oh, they funny. messing with our expectations. Um the Technicolor is pretty beautiful. How it. did you see the movie? At the art theater. Okay. I was listening to an interview with uh, the head of Criterion. Uh-huh. And he mentioned like that going to your local cinema is like a great way to find out about movies. And um, like movies that aren't mainstream. Yeah. Which is like something I'm really, I don't know, kind of craving. Like I want to, I'm getting kind of mainstream fatigue, I think, right now. And I want to watch a little mm-hmm. bit more of the independent stuff so or like stuff like this like i just love that the art theater does, does things like that yeah so that's really cool that's well, a great once uh, infinity war comes out i am done <laughs> <laughs> okay uh let's uh, maybe after solo i'm done i'm not gonna watch that in theaters you're not N- absolutely not oh i will i'm no. excited how bad could it be it's ron howard dude ron yeah. howard Ron, Ron Howard, Howard is a completely cap- he he's an aggressively capable director. That's the best I can say about him. I'm calling Solo Kathleen Kennedy's first directorial debut. Cause she because she she's backseat directed this movie. Oh my movie. gosh, here comes your Disney's conspiracy <laughs> theory. No, no, no. It, every Ka- time, every Kathleen, time is your like cynicism about Disney. Kathleen Kennedy it's is the same thing. Is the head of Lucasfilm one, mm-hmm. not Disney. She's the head of Lucasfilm, which uh, is owned right. by Disney. But it, yeah. She has fired, I think, how many directors on this project? I only know of two. 
Yeah, and then she, you know this is her movie. So. And she hired a, a young upstart pushover Look, like Ron Howard. No, no, <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy. She's done a lot of good. A, a ton of my favorite movies were produced by her. I'm just saying. <laughs> this is our generation's Gone with the Wind. She should just own the fact that Solo is her movie. Just be the director, Kathleen. Like you have your vision, just do it. Anyway, you know what? I'm tired of talking to you both. So let's end this episode. <laughs> uh. We would love to hear about your favorite movie moments. So if you want to tweet us or leave a review on iTunes with five stars, please uh, converse with us. We'd love to hear what movie moments you guys love. So tweet at, at us. At Film Lovers Pod. At Film Lovers Pod. That's right. Um, you can find out more at filmloverspodcast.com. And if you're an advertiser, we'd love some money. <laughs> movie Pass. Don't listen to Russ's comments about your business model. We love you. <laughs> yeah, no, I love you despite your flaws, Movie Pass. I've Stop. Seen, <laughs> I've seen almost 20 movies in two months, so no. thanks. David, have you gotten it yet? Uh, I'm going to. I know they just made it cheaper, so yeah, you guys cheaper. wore me down. Well, until David gets Movie Pass, uh, <laughs> my name is Russell Dietrich. My name is Casey Summers. And I'm David Ryan Anderson. We love you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Film Lovers Podcast. To feel the love and to find out more information, please visit us online at filmloverspodcast.com. Something's brewing at D&D. Wow! It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Dunkachino? Don't mind if I do. What's my name? Dunkachino. It's a whole new game. Dunkachino. You want creamy goodness? I'm your friend. Say hello to my chocolate blend. Attica, who are lucky like? This whole trial is out of sight. They pull me back in with hazelnut too. Caramel swirl. I know it was you. Everyone wants my Dunkachino. Can't get enough of my Dunkachino. Kids from 7 to 17 lining up for my Dunkachino. What's my name? Dunkachino. Dunka, 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 Dunkachino. And boom, there you have it. It's actually 32 seconds, so I gotta lose two seconds. Maybe you can tell me what, what part you would lose, but I think we are getting there. <laughs>